Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. It's the second book in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we've been studying through this book chapter by chapter, and we've <clears throat> been studying the plagues in particular. This morning, we come to the seventh plague. And we find the gospel, as we do in every passage of Scripture, we've found the gospel in every plague. God using even judgment to drive to repentance and to remind us He is, as we've already heard, the King of our salvation. Now, when we started studying the plagues, we said that the first nine were arranged in three groups of three, and we find a pattern repeated in every, every one of these three sets. In the first of each set, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh early in the morning and in private and with a long bit of narrative, he warns him of what's going to happen if he chooses to rebel against God, if he disobeys and will not let God's people go. Then the second time he comes and he warns him again, this time a bit uh, more crisply, but uh, in his palace, in the privacy of his chambers, a little more public. The third time that Pharaoh chooses to rebel, the judgment comes without warning and comes swiftly. In this seventh plague, we find the ninth warning that God gives to Pharaoh. But just like the other two, he comes early in the morning. He warns him with a lot of words. And he says, this judgment is coming if you disobey. Now, Pharaoh's been through this six times already. He's heard this warning nine times. And yet, insanely, he continues to disobey. Some of you may be living in disobedience too, and this passage comes to you and it warns you to turn away from the insanity of disobedience. Come back to Jesus. Others of you are obeying, and yet it seems like you're the only one, and the people around you are telling you you're crazy for following the Lord. And this passage also comes to you and says, you're not crazy. You've chosen the wise way. It's the way of God's blessing. Let's begin reading in verse 13 and see what God has to say to us, reading to the end of chapter 9. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I'll send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I'll cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore sin, get your livestock all that you have in the field and a safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves 
and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There'll be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, so they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, would you open our eyes that we would behold wonderful truths from the gospel of the Lord and King Jesus Christ. We pray it in his strong name and all God's people said together, amen. 1962, the Philadelphia Warriors were playing the New York Knicks basketball teams. There was a seven foot, one inch tall phenom named Wilt Chamberlain who in that game scored a hundred points. I think it's a record that may not ever be broken, 100 points. What was particularly amazing that night is that 28 of those points were scored from the free throw line. Given that Will Chamberlain had only in his best moments scored 40% from the free throw line, this was an amazing thing. And it's likely that they would not have won over the Knicks had they not scored those 28 points from the free throw line because they only won the game by 22 points. He scored 100 points, 72 of them from the field, 28 from, from, the, from the free throw line, and they only won by 22 points. Now, why did he do so well? Well, he had observed a young college basketball player named Rick Barry at the University of Miami at the time who had figured out that if he shot 
free throws underhanded, he could do better. In fact, he had a 94.7% success rate from the free throw line by shooting the granny shot. Will Chamberlain decided to imitate him for that game, and it worked, 28 out of 30 free throws. But he never shot that way again. The answer, he says in his autobiography, because people told him he looked like a sissy. They laughed at me. They said I looked silly. I never shot that way again. So it became a strategy to shut down Wilt Chamberlain. Just foul him, send him to the line. He won't make the free throw. Similar strategy they had against Shaquille O'Neal. Hack-a-shack, it was called. If you hack the shack, you send him to the free throw line, he couldn't make anything. Rick Barry felt sorry for him. He said he offered his help to coach him how to shoot the granny shot and improve his percentage. And Shaquille O'Neal said, I would rather score zero from the free throw line than shoot the granny shot. And he did. He did shoot zero from the right. How he thought that, that that kind of shot that he had from the free throw line looked better than the granny shot, I don't know. Reflecting on that phenomenon, uh, Malcolm Gladwell Ask, why do smart people do dumb things? Why do smart people do dumb things? He knew it was the key to success, but he would, he would rather not make the shot than look silly. Sociologist named Mark Granovetter came up with a sociological model called the threshold model of collective behavior. And he said that there is a threshold within each of us that uh, we choose to do dumb things if enough people pressure us into doing them. If enough people pressure us into doing the dumb thing, we'll do the dumb thing. If enough people pressure us not to do the smart thing, we will not do the smart thing. The threshold of collective behavior. What is the antidote to avoiding the threshold of collective behavior, the, the insanity of disobedience? The only power strong enough to resist that threshold, the only power strong enough to enable you to obey the Lord when everybody else says it's crazy to do so, the only power strong enough is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. When you are convinced of the love of God in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how large the majority is against you. You will follow Jesus, and it will always be the wiser way. Now, Pharaoh illustrates it. Pharaoh illustrates that the insanity of disobedience is to turn your back. It's insane to turn your back on God's general revelation. That is the way he reveals himself in the creation, the way he reveals himself in their conscience. And it's insane to turn your back in disobedience on the one who reveals himself through his special revelation through the scriptures. Look at how it comes out in the life of Pharaoh in verses 13 to 18. God reveals to Pharaoh that he is good. God reveals his goodness to Pharaoh. He says in verse 16 or verse 14, I am going to do this thing to show the glory of my name. What is God's glory but his mercy? 
Remember when Moses asked to see the glory of God, cause your glory to pass in front of me. And God says, I will. And here it is, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, who keeps loving kindness to thousands of generations who love me and keep my commandments. That is my mercy. That's who I am. That is my glory. And elsewhere, the Bible says the same thing. For instance, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God, the goodness of God. Now, Paul says in, in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and following, he says, God is the giver of life and breath and everything else for this reason, that you may seek him. Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says that uh, God causes his son to warm the wicked and the good. He causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And Paul said in Romans chapter 2, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. When you look at the creation, when you look in your conscience, you must be overwhelmed with the reality that God is good. You say there are lots of troubles in this world. Yes, there are lots of troubles. There are lots of problems in this world, lots of problems in you and me. And they're all explained by the entrance of sin through our first parents, Adam and Eve. But the real problem is not with the problems in the world. The real problem is with pleasure. Why is there any good left? Why is there any pleasure left? Why is there any beauty left? Why is there any life left given our rebellion against God? But God reveals his goodness and his mercy everywhere. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Francis Collins, the, the developer, the leader of the Human Genome Project and later the director of the National Institutes of Health, said that to his chagrin, to his embarrassment, he was able to complete his medical training without ever believing in God. He said he just found it easier not to think about God. It was less interruptive. But one day he was, he met a patient, a patient came in to see him and, and, she, and she just had a, she just simply shared what she believed about Jesus. She shared her faith with Dr. Collins, and then, and then she asked a simple question. What, what, Dr. Collins, what do you believe in? I believe in Jesus. What do you believe in? Now, can you imagine how intimidating that must have been to witness to that brilliant doctor? But that's all she did. She just said, this is who I believe. I believe in Jesus. What do you believe in? And he said that, that, that question left him speechless. He felt like a fool because he, he couldn't answer in an intelligent way. He didn't know what he believed in. He didn't want to believe in Jesus. He didn't want to believe in God. But he thought, looking at all of the research and all of the scientific phenomena that he had been exposed to through the years, he had no choice but to believe that there must be a designer God. And then one day this happened, he said. <clears throat> I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God, and now I was being called to account. On a beautiful fall day, I was walking, I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi. The majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. 
as I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose and I surrendered my heart to Jesus. He's a very smart man. And some would call insane for believing in Jesus Christ. But it's the wisest way. A general revelation reveals that God is good, but it also reveals that God is offended. The Bible says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, Romans 1, 18. And it's certainly clearly what is happening with these plagues. As, as uh, Pharaoh continues to rebel, God responds with this judgment. And it's not a vague judgment. It's specific. Remember, we've, we've noted as we've studied each plague that each plague is a strategic airstrike against a particular God. And that, it's, that it is God's demonstrating that that God, that false God, doesn't have the power that is being ascribed to him, doesn't have the glory that is being attributed to him or to her. And so God attacked the the false god of the Nile, and God attacked the false god of fertility, and God attacked the false god of epidemics. And now there is this god that, that Pharaoh apparently is trusting in, saying, I'm not going to obey your god, Moses. I have another god, and this god is going to protect me from the threat of heaven, the threat of the heavens opening up and taking away my crops and my livestock. His name is Seth. And I believe that Seth will protect me. But Seth was of no more use than any of the rest of the gods. And, and it's, it's this, this, this pouring out of hail is a consistent demonstration of judgment, judgment throughout Scripture. Isaiah and Joshua and Revelation. But it's specifically in response to those who say our help comes from another. Our help comes from another who will shield us from God. In other words, God allowed the hail to fall as the logical consequence to their choices. God simply removed his hand and said, I'm not going to protect you. I've been protecting you from the threat of hail, of absolutely decimating your crops all of these years. And even the Egyptians had to say, there has been no hailstone like this one since the founding of Egypt. It's never recorded in the annals of Egypt such a hailstorm. And it all came because God allowed them to experience the consequences of their choices. That's really what judgment is. It's not a random strike against you. If, you. if you, for instance, are suffering in some way and you're wondering if it's because God is angry with you, then it's most likely it's not God because God doesn't work generically like that. The Holy Spirit is not passive-aggressive. He doesn't send something and then say, guess why I'm mad at you. He wants you to be restored. He wants you to repent. He wants to renew the relationship. And so he lets you have the consequences, have the consequences of the choices we insist on at times. 
It's like this. It's kind of a silly illustration, but a friend of mine who is very much an adult now was a very strong-willed child. And her uh, mother said that every, everything in her life was a battle, every, a battle of the wills. And so she went through a phase when she wanted, to, she wanted to touch the stove. She wanted to touch the hot stove. And she could not understand how a loving mother would not let her play with a hot stove. And her mother would push her away. You may not touch the hot stove. You get away from the stove. It's going to hurt you. I'm warning you. This is, this is dangerous. And, and one day she knew this was going to have to happen. Just like all the other lessons in her life, she's going to have to experience a hot stove. And she, she just didn't intercept her that time. And my friend said, uh, went up to the stove, and there were three, four burners on the stovetop. And she said very confidently and arrogantly to her mother, this isn't hot. And then she touched the next burner. This isn't hot. And she touched the next burner. This isn't hot. And then she touched the fourth burner, which was hot. And scalded her little hand. And she screamed. And she, and she, her mother had to take her up in her arms and, and hold her and comfort her, put, run them under cold water, put ice cubes on them, put the balm and bandages on them and comfort her while she, while she wept. Now, what if she, after burning her hand, sat back and said, I don't understand why my mother burned my hand. Why was my mother so cruel as to burn my hand? What have I ever done to her? Or, or what if she said, I'm going to reject my mother because she, she burned my hand? Her mother didn't burn her hand. She burned her own hand. Her mother allowed her to, to receive the consequences of the insanely disobedient choice she was making. And then her mother graciously loved her back into that relationship of trust. The same is true of God. Is that the way you're treating God? You've said, in effect, I know better than you in relationships. I know better than you, God, in marriage. I know better than you, God, in child-rearing. I know better than you, God, in materialism. I know better than you, God, in business. I know better than you, God, in addictive substances. I know better than you, God, in the way I'm going about my work and my family. I know better than you, God, in regard to sexuality. I know better than you. And now he has left you to your consequences and you're raising your fist against him and saying, how could you do this to me? He's left you to your consequences that you might learn from your behavior, but he is there. He has not turned his back on you. He opens his arms to you in Christ and says, I want to restore you to the sanity and the blessing of obedience. Now, Pharaoh not only rebelled against that general revelation, he rebelled against special revelation. He rebelled against what he had heard from the mouth of God through Moses. Moses had given him a lot of theology. When he first met with Moses in, in chapter 5, verse 2, he didn't even know who God was. And by the time the frogs came, he was calling God by his covenant name. And so Pharaoh learned a lot about God from God's words spoken to him. 
And Moses, I mean Pharaoh, was rejecting not just general knowledge about God. He was, he was rejecting very special, specific revelation of God's grace. God said to him early on, it says to Moses, I'm going to send my strokes against the heart of Pharaoh. And he says, I'm going to send my plagues. I'm literally going to send my strokes to the heart of Pharaoh. I'm going after Pharaoh's heart. And it is in Pharaoh's heart that he rebels against the Lord. He knows his grace and rebels against him anyway. Oh, you say, but he, he said, I've sinned. I've done, but probably shouldn't be translated literally, I've sinned. It could be translated, it is translated in other places, I've erred. I've made a mistake. The kind, of, the kind of confession you give when you're caught doing something you shouldn't be. What, what Martin Luther called Ina Galgenroya, uh, repentance on the gallows, right before you're going to be executed. You say, oh yes, now I'm sorry for that. This is what the Bible calls worldly sorrow versus godly repentance. It's not true repentance, and it's evidenced by the fact that Pharaoh doesn't cry out to God himself. Charles Spurgeon said, this is condemning faith. He knew enough to realize that he needed God's help, but he still was not willing to appeal personally to the God of salvation. Don't say, oh, preacher, would you please pray for me? You pray to him. It's Jesus himself who reaches out to you and says, come to me. It's Jesus himself who reveals to you a personal God who wants to be reconciled with you, to call you child and for you to call him father. Look at the grace that Pharaoh has to rebel against in order to stay in this kind of disobedience. The grace of the ninth warning. His having seen that the consequences of his disobedience bring bring judgment and yet it doesn't bring judgment on those who are living in Goshen on the Israelites he could just look across the plain and he could see that those aren't perfect people but the difference between them and between me is that they have submitted to God think of the think of the grace that that God exercised in warning Pharaoh you better you better put your but your livestock and your and your slaves in shelter I don't want to wipe you out, God says. This strange uh, parenthetical phrase in verse 31, a parenthetical remark that, that, uh, that, the, that the hail only fell on the flax and barley and not on the wheat and the spelt. Well, what is the significance of that? Flax is what they made clothes from. Barley is what they fed to their cattle. But if it fell on their wheat and on their spelt, they would have lost their, their sustenance for life. They wouldn't have been able to live as human beings. At the worst now, they're not going to have clothes for another year. And their cows are going to have to eat more uh, straw that was intended for bricks and, and less barley. But they're going to be kept alive. Pharaoh looks squarely at all of that grace. It was even explained to him. He chooses to disobey. Why do you continue? 
Some of you continuing to rebel against the Lord and say, I know better than you. When only your disobedience, when your disobedience only brings dehumanizing to you. Not more fun, not more blessing. It's only sane. It's only a life of joy when you live it in obedience to Jesus Christ. Famous author Frederica Matthews Green <clears throat> says that when she was growing up, when she was about nine years old, she uh, found out about the Lord and she, she really wanted to follow Him, she thought, and, but her parents uh, thought that she was being fanatical and so they disagreed. They dis, uh, discourage that. You're just, you're just being crazy. By the age of 12, she said she, had, she thought that, the, that Christianity was a thorough sham. And by the time she went to college, she was an atheist, fell in love with an atheist, married an atheist. They both went to graduate school as atheists. They were hiking around Europe on their honeymoon just as they had started graduate school and she said her, her husband uh, had been assigned to, to read one of the Gospels for one of his class, classes. And he said while they were hiking one day, he said, uh, you know, there's really something fascinating about this guy named Jesus. In fact, I, I sort of like him. I admire him. And she said, you don't want to be a fanatic. Don't do that. I was terrified, she said. I was terrified that my husband was going to become a Christian and become a fanatic like I almost became at nine years old. But he couldn't get enough reading the gospel, sharing with her. One day they went into a church in Dublin and they were admiring the stained glass windows and the architecture. They came into a little chapel and there was a marble statue of Jesus, a white marble statue, but a, there was a red heart outside of his chest wrapped in thorns and before she could realize it she said she was on her knees and she was and she heard someone speaking to her she didn't hear it audibly but she heard in her mind it said you thought your life was your own you thought that uh, your life was your plan you thought your life was your heart beating you thought your life was your being able to carry it out, but I am your life. I alone am your life. She said, I knew it was Jesus. She and her husband about the same time came to the conclusion, we must be, Jesus must be the only way. And later when they got back to the States, someone said, have you ever given your lives to Jesus Christ? Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord as well as your Savior? And they said, no, we were raised Episcopalian. That's what Southern Baptists do. No, he said. It's not just for Southern Baptists. It's for everybody. Jesus gave his life for yours. And when you give your life to him, you surrender it to Him. You get it back in an infinitely better form. What's holding you back? Which way could you possibly think is wiser than following Jesus? 
Let this scripture, which everywhere talks about Jesus, so captivate you that you're inoculated against that threshold of the insanity of disobedience and walk with him no matter what pressure is brought to you otherwise. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. Turn back those who are running from you. Turn back those who have gone into the far country as prodigal children. In, in strengthen the rest of us who are trying to stand for you. Capture our hearts is what we pray for all of us. Capture our hearts. And expel all those forces and those temptations that would turn us from following you, our good God, and our faithful and beautiful Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray and God's people said, amen.